Let us turn now to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15, reading at verse 37. Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, reading at verse 37. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Now we return to the scene of theme which we had the past day, two months, the sayings of our Lord from the cross. And God willing, one would like to linger there for a week or two and to consider the uh, events that unfolded immediately after his death, the uh, in the following order, the rent, or the rending rather, of the veil, which we have before us tonight. Then the earthquake, the opening of the graves, and the resurrection of some from the dead, we read, who went into the holy city, into Jerusalem. And then we have a full account of the burial of our Lord and uh, then the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps for the next four weeks, leading up to the special evangelistic services, which will be held here the second week of January, I would like to dwell on these themes with you. Tonight we have the rending of the veil. Now there are some people who claim that the rending of the veil of the temple was as a direct result of the earthquake that uh, took place at the death of Jesus. But uh, that uh, view can be discounted because there is no record at all either in the Bible here or in secular history, that the temple or its foundations was in any way um, affected by that earthquake. The uh, evidence before our eyes here as we read this account in Matthew, Mark and Luke is that this was a supernatural occurrence, one in which the hand of God was obviously operating. Someone has called it God's first utterance after the death of Christ. And if it is that, as we believe it is, it was an utterance which she took place within the temple. It was a temple address. 
God, someone else says, makes his majestic appearance at its portals and addresses his people from its front steps. Scarcely has the Lord of glory and the Lord of life bowed his head and given his life on the cross than the awful scene is changed. Heaven no longer withholds its recognition of the man of sorrows. The cry of the dying mediator, it is finished, receives the most most, uh, bright confirmation and the most brilliant confirmation. And uh, in lieu of the hostile tumult, which he says hitherto raged around him, a sublime celebration of his incomparable triumph ensues. And it is to that celebration that we turn to consider tonight this account of the rending of the veil of the temple. Now one or two things I want to discuss with you. First of all, the veil and its teaching. Secondly, more particularly, the veil and its tearing. And thirdly, an application of the significance of that great event to ourselves here this evening. What in the first place was the significance and the teaching of the veil of the temple? Well, you know that the temple was built on the lines of the tabernacle. And to understand the significance of this meaning we have for a little, just to have a look at the temple itself, the layout and the furniture. The temple was in effect divided into three areas. There was first of all the outer court to which the worshipper came with the sacrifices. You know that in the history of Israel... And in the religious say, the worship of, in the worship of Israel, sacrifice was at its heart. And you know, it is an interesting study just to look at the sections in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, particularly the Epistle to the Hebrews, to find out how the Israelite worshipped. Well, just simply for our sakes tonight, let us remind ourselves that he came to the outer court of the temple with a sacrifice. And there the sacrifice was slain and the offering made on the the altar of burnt offering. And uh, leaving the altar of burnt offering, the priest would proceed towards the laver and uh, the the brazen laver. And there uh, the sacrifice and the priest himself on occasion would wash his hands. And then he would pass through the outer court through a veil or through a curtain into the holy place. And in that holy place were the golden candlestick and the table with the showbread and the altar of incense. Now the veil that separated the outer court from the holy place was about 60 feet wide and 40 feet long. 
It was very, very heavy. It took over a hundred priests. When the Israelites in the Old Testament, when they moved, when the tabernacle moved, it took a hundred of them to take down and to carry that very heavy veil. It was hung on golden eyelets, which were attached to a long pole. And then, as you entered into the holy place, there before you was another veil, another curtain, which separated the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And when the priest passed through that, and was only the high priest who was allowed to enter there once a year on the Day of Atonement, when he passed through that veil, he was in the, holy, the most holy place where God was represented and the presence of God represented by the Ark of the Covenant overlaid with the golden mercy seat on which were the two cherubim, one at either end, and in the Ark a copy of the tables of the law together with Aaron's rod, Aaron's rod that budded and the golden pot that had manna. And in there the high priest went once a year with the blood of the atoning sacrifice. And the significance of, and we believe that that was the veil that is here referred to, the significance of the veil that hid the most holy place from view lies exactly there. It was a veil that hid from view what was inside that place. A veil, the significance of the veil in the Bible is that it hides, it covers, it comes between someone and something else. Now, it taught and the worship of Israel, the worship of the Israelite taught him every time he came it taught him that though he could come with a sacrifice he could never enter into the most holy place himself even the entrance of the high priest once a year taught the Israelites that they could never enter that place and so the significance of the veil is this it was that which spoke of restricted access only the high priest it was that which spoke of separation the people were separated from the high priest it spoke to them of separation from the most holy place it was a symbol to them of the barrier that existed between the worshipper and his God and a barrier which could only be penetrated by the high priest and that only as he carried with, the, with him into the holy place the blood of the sacrifice it was a symbol to the a sign to the Israelite that sin came between him and God that his sin always remained, no matter how often he came. And that God always remained the holy God. 
And because these two things were unchangeable, sin in its nature and God in his nature, then he was cut off from God and from all that was represented, from all that the furniture of the tabernacle represented concerning God. It signified to him that he was unfit to come near God. It told him that a distance existed between him and God. It told him that there was a darkness between him and God. And it told him that the only way of approach was by someone else acting in his name and carrying the blood of the sacrifice that he had brought. Now then, that was the significance of the veil in the temple. What happened at Calvary? What happened when Jesus died on the cross? Well, what happened was this. That great, thick and heavy veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, what, secondly, does the tearing teach us? Well, let us linger at that scene for a minute. Jesus died roughly at three o'clock in the afternoon. He hung on the cross for six hours. He was nailed to the cross about nine o'clock in the morning. At least he was hung on the pole at nine o'clock in the morning. For three hours he hung there till darkness descended about noon. And we read that the darkness enveloped the scene for three hours. And immediately after the darkness, as we saw the past few weeks, he uttered the three last sayings from the cross. I thirst, it is finished. And Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And there are only a few hours, just from that time until six o'clock in the evening, the end of the Jewish day and the beginning of the preparation for the Passover. There was only that limited period of time during which, and especially at the Passover, during which the priests were especially busy in the temple preparing for the evening sacrifice. All of a sudden, this temple veil before their very eyes was torn from the top to the bottom. And that from which they were excluded was now opened to their view. And there is no doubt that if you believe the Bible at all, you must accept this as a supernatural, as a divine act in which God was speaking, not only to them but to us, and speaking as powerfully through the rending of the veil as Jesus had spoken himself from the cross. And what was God saying by this act? Well, several things. And this will contain the body of this address tonight. First of all, God was answering a question. And some of you may be surprised to think that such a question had to be answered. Well, of course it had to be answered. The question was this. 
who was going to sit as Lord in that temple? To whom was that temple to belong? To whom was the worship to belong? Was it going to belong to the Lord and to the people? Or was it going to belong to Satan and to his emissaries? Because on the cross and in the death of Jesus, that great question was posed and answered. To whom did the victory belong? Did it belong to Jesus or to Satan? And let us remind ourselves of the significance of the Bible's teaching on this great, great work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Never think in terms of Jesus being taken by death. Never think in terms of Jesus being taken by death. Those who are present in the morning in the scary says, forgive me if I just refer to this briefly in the passing. Never ever think of the Lord as being as being captured by death. Jesus gave himself to death. Death was a stronger man armed that Jesus himself spoke about on more than one occasion. And in his, in his obedience unto death, he was confronting death in its threefold capacity, spiritual, eternal, and physical, on that cross. And when the moment came for him to die, he died triumphantly. He wasn't taken, he wasn't defeated, he wasn't overcome, he wasn't enveloped, he wasn't arrested. He gave himself to death. He gave himself to death. And in doing it, he conquered death in his threefold capacity, and on the third day he rose triumphant over it, to show his victory over physical death and over the grave as well. We will come to that, God willing, in a week or two. But the point at issue is this. When Jesus died, a great question was decided. Did the world belong to Jesus or did it belong to Satan? Would Satan defeat Jesus in death or would Jesus defeat him? Would the temple come under the power and dominion of Satan, or would it come under the power and the dominion of the Lord? And here is the answer. Would Satan take over the spiritual realm, or was Jesus, he who was crucified in weakness, would he become the one mighty to save? Would God act? Would God answer? And here is the answer. Here is the work of God. He tore the temple, as someone put it. He came from within the temple and opened up the way to himself for those who were without. It was God working from within. From within. As he worked from above, tearing it wide open and allowing the Israelite to see what he had never seen before and in doing it bringing to an end worship through sacrifice bringing to an end the need of a of a, of a burnt offering of, of, a, of, of the altar of burnt offering the need for the brazen labor 
the need for the candlestick and the table of the showbread and the altar of incense, the need for the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat and the cherubim and the golden pot and the rod that budded, bringing to an end the need for all these things, it was open to view. God was now accessible to the common man, to priest and people. God was speaking through the death of Jesus, as we read here tonight in Hebrews chapter 10, and saying loudly and clearly, a new way has been opened up through the death of Christ for sinners into the immediate presence of God. That was the teaching of the rending of the veil. God was saying clearly, Christ has paid the price. Christ in his death has given us a right to enter. He has carried away the sin that obstructed entrance. He has opened up a way for God to come to us and for us to come to God. He has accomplished the priestly act. No more sacrifice for sins. This man has offered up one sacrifice for sins forever. And there is no need to repeat them. It is now a case of an exclusive God, as someone put it, for an exclusive people. God is accessible to all. And the presence of God and the fellowship and the favor and communion with God now becomes the privilege that is open to the sinner. That was what God was saying with the rending of the veil. Now a third question. What exactly then? What exactly, if God was saying that, what exactly did the death of Jesus do for you and for me? Well, let us remind ourselves again of what this veil signified. Sin bars our entrance into the presence of God. But this is the clear teaching of the word of God. Christ took our sins upon himself and bore our sins away in his obedience unto death. The justice of God barred our way as sinners. God's justice had to be met and Jesus satisfied his justice in his death. The wrath and the curse of God was opposed to us in our approaches to him. But he bore the wrath and he bore the curse in his death and he took that away. He satisfied the demands of God. There was a great distance signified by the veil between us and God. But Christ, by his obedience unto death, bridged the gulf. There was a darkness between us and God. But Jesus entered into that realm and took it away and restored the light and gave us the bridge and the door 
is now open. So that in answer to the question we sang here tonight, who is the man that shall ascend into the hill of God? And who within his holy place shall have a firm abode? Can we, in our own native sinfulness? No, we can't, because the Bible goes on to say, whose hands are clean, whose heart is pure, and who has not lifted up his his heart unto iniquity. That's the man who shall ascend into the hill of God, into the very presence of God. But that's not us. There was only one man of whom that was true. The Lord Jesus Christ. He has gone in there for you and for me and opened up for us the way into the presence of God. And he did it, tells the writer of the Hebrews. He did it through his own death. We, he says, and remember how the passage goes there, we read here tonight. And this is exactly what it means. It's a reference to what happened when the veil of the temple was rent. As we read there in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Um, the, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. And he explains it. That is to say, his flesh... The veil of the temple was opened when the flesh of Jesus was torn. Now what exactly does that mean? Was the flesh of Jesus not torn when they put a crown of thorns upon his head? Yes. Was the, was the flesh of Jesus not torn when nails were driven through his hands and through his feet? Yes. Was the flesh of Jesus not torn when the soldier thrust the spear into his side? Yes. Is that, is any, are any of these things the rending of his flesh or the tearing of his flesh that Hebrews 10 speaks about? No. What Hebrews 10 speaks about is the death of Jesus in which his soul was severed from his body. That is death. When Jesus gave his spirit into the hand of his God, then the humanity of our Lord was torn. It was intact to that moment in time. Intact, united to his person. But then, when he dismissed the spirit, it was torn from his body. His humanity, his humanity was torn in death, and the veil of the temple was opened. Do you remember that when we spoke last a fortnight ago about Jesus saying, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit? You remember the word that the New Testament uses for that word, Father. I dismiss my spirit. You and I in death. And that's the difference between the death of Jesus and your death and mine. When you die and when I die, our soul is, our spirit is taken from our body. That's death. But when Jesus died, he dismissed his spirit from his body. He was active in death.
Air passeth. Death takes us and takes our spirit away with it. But he was active. And when death came, he dismissed his spirit into the hands of death. And that was the rending of the veil of his flesh. You see, his humanity was the veil that covered, as they tend to put it, it covered the glory of his person. And people saw him as, as, as the writer of the Philippines tells us, and all oh, only you and I could get to grips with the wonderful teaching of the Bible on the person and the work of Jesus. Remember what it says about this man who was in the world and whose birth some people celebrate ostensibly in a, week's, in a couple of weeks' time, and they forget the significance of the birth of Jesus. That was God in our nature, Emmanuel. God with us. And he was in this world near 2,000 years ago. And people looked at him. They saw him. He was a mere man. They treated him as less than a man. They couldn't see what the flesh veiled. And from time to time you know that the glory, which was as it were behind that veil, shone through. It shone through on the Mount of Transfiguration. It shone through in the Garden of Gethsemane. From time to time, rays of his glory penetrated the veil. But in essence, the veil was a covering for the glory of his Godhead. And that's that's something that you and I find so difficult to come to terms with. How the glory of God could be veiled or covered by human nature, but it was. But you see, when that human nature was torn, when the soul was severed from the body, then it did. It ceased, as it were, it ceased to, to, to be intact. As someone put it, as long as that flesh remained intact, unbroken, God couldn't be revealed. But in death, the veil, the body, and the soul, the body and the soul were severed. One from the other, though not, of course, from the person. And on Golgotha, it has been said, the veil of the supreme temple was rent in the form of the body of Christ. Hence, the veil of the lower temple was simultaneously torn when he died. That is the rending of the veil, the death of Jesus, soul from body, torn asunder. Then, the tearing of this physical, visible veil of the temple was torn asunder as well. And notice how it is put, from the top. Oh, the significance of the way in which the Bible puts things. From the top, it was God who was acting. Remember what Paul says to Corinthians, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. We couldn't reach up to the top. Only the hand of God could do this. And he began with himself. God 
reconciled to us in the death of his son. And he tore it right down to the bottom to us. That's where we were at the foot of that veil. And God came right down to us. And he tore it, we read, in the midst. In the midst. In the middle. He tore it wide open. There are some who believe that the word here, the verb, is used right. Signifies the anger of God. Angry that sin had interposed between him and man. Thankful that sin had been done away in the death of a son. And so he acts. And he does it himself from the top right down to the bottom in the midst, wide open, completely nothing left to be done. He went the whole way from himself to us. And there is no one excluded. The way is now open. God now receives sinners. God can now come to the sinner in Christ and the sinner can now come to God in Christ. The name and the work of Jesus prevails. No one is excluded and no one who comes is refused. You have a right to come, not in yourself, but in the name of Jesus. No one dares obstruct you. No one dare come between you and the God who has come to you in Christ. No one can dare repel you. No one can dare check you for coming. No one can, no one can accuse you for coming. And this is the thrust of that epistle of that passage in Hebrews chapter 10. The way is open. Let us therefore come with boldness. And with a full assurance of faith to God for acceptance and forgiveness. It was Rabbi Duncan who used the words, the worship of the church on earth. And how wonderful this is. The worship of the church on earth is conducted in heaven. What do you mean? Ah, my friend, that's where you and I come tonight in the name of Jesus Christ. What a wonder that is, that heaven's gates are open wide to receive you and to receive me tonight in the name of Jesus. God, says the psalmist, is in his holy temple. And that's where you and I are encouraged to come. Into the secrets of the Most High, as we sang here tonight, he that dwells. In the secret place of the Most High, he that resides there has shelter in God. And he comes not as the high priest came once a year to the Most Holy Place. He comes time and time again. This is our privilege. This is a great blessing of the Gospel that we come to him. And we come in a way that is described for us further as a new way devised by God and provided for us by God and procured for us by Jesus Christ. You know that if you think of the Old Testament worshipper coming with a sacrifice maybe on Monday 
and the sacrifice is offered and the blood is slain. And he has to come again maybe on Wednesday. And he cannot come with the same sacrifice. Because by then, the blood with which he came on Monday has perished. You know, blood is perishable. It only lasts so long. It only lasts so long then. He had to come with a sacrifice, a new one every day. The old was perished. But here's a new way. New every day, new every morning. Jesus Christ, the infant of days. There is a newness in the sacrifice. It was in the name of Jesus that they came 2,000 years ago. It's in the name of Jesus that the reformers came, the covenanters came, our forefathers came, our fathers came, and we come. It is new, always new, never old, a new and a living way. It is always sufficient to meet your needs, always efficacious to cover your sins and to give you acceptance before God it is a living way living because this is where life is life flows to us from him life is maintained in our souls by him we come to God in this new and living way you know that there is a wonderful story recorded for us in the Bible in the life of the man you were hearing about this morning here in the life of Abraham who after one of the wonderful promises that God renewed to him engaged, entered into covenant with God and I'm just going to read this to you bear with me while I read it Abraham we read here made a, a sacrifice unto God in Genesis chapter 15 when the sun was going down he took, he took unto him a various animals, a heifer, a she-goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one, one against another. But the birds divided not. You see, he put the sacrifice one piece opposite the other and there was a channel running through the sacrifice that he had made on the ground. And this is what happened. It came to pass when the sun went down and was dark. Behold a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed along that channel between these pieces. And Abraham made a covenant with God. God made a covenant with Abraham that day. Well, my friend, let me put it like this. You and I come to God tonight. And we can only come as we pass through the broken humanity of Jesus. He laid himself on the altar. His human nature was torn when he gave himself to death. And that is a way of approach for the sinner tonight into the presence of God. You have no hope in yourself you have only hope in him we come in his name we come by way of the blood 
and we come with freedom of approach and assurance of acceptance and of access. We come to him who is the order. We come to him who is the labor. We come to him who gives light to the candlestick. We come to him who is the bread of life. We come to him in whom our prayers are as incense before the the Lord. We We come to him who is the ark of the covenant himself to him who is the mercy seat himself to him whose blood has up has opened the way and has given to us a right and a title into the very presence of God himself oh my friend what a privilege is yours what a privilege is yours do you feel your need of God tonight do you feel your need of forgiveness of acceptance, of renewal? Do you feel as a sinner that you want to come but you're afraid to come? Is your conscience accusing you? Are your friends worrying you and annoying you? The thought of what awaits you is that a barrier and a hindrance to you tonight? You remember that the Lord in his death has removed them all. And his blood cleanses cleanses the conscience from dead works. Of course there'll be people accusing you. Your conscience will accuse you. The devil will accuse you. Remember what Paul said right right to the Romans. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand. Of God the Father. When the way into his presence. Is open so wide. Who will obstruct you. In coming. And you. In your approaches to God. God. Is merciful to the sinner. Who comes. In the name of Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, do thou help us, Lord, to come to thee. May we say with the psalmist, Lo, I come. As he himself said, Come into the world, I come to do thy will, O God. Do thou enable us by thy grace, O, to come to thee in the name of the one who fulfilled completely and perfectly all that thou hast willed, all that thou hadst willed for him. Bless us in our fellowship tonight in the gospel. Undertake for us and part us with thy blessing. And forgive all our sins and holy things for Jesus' sake. Amen.